0: Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, Real Estate 320. This happens to be show number 18. And the last time we met, we were talking about conventional financing. As I've mentioned before, when you get ready to purchase a property or to refinance it, if you will, you typically are going to either have conventional financing, which is, uh, by definition, is where we're not having any kind of a government uh insurance program or guarantee program on on the lending. And uh, typically, these conventional financing programs, you usually are getting them through a bank, uh, such as Wells Fargo or Bank of America, or maybe through a, a mortgage broker or mortgage banker like Viatech or Countrywide Funding. They have become much more popular in the last few years and in some cases have uh, been become more popular than standard... Uh, uh, FHA or VA programs primarily because they have allowed uh, lower down payments. And uh, also what we're going to talk about today, private mortgage insurance has become more popular or used to ensure that risk. So, And also the limits to the loans have in, traditionally been higher in areas in which uh, FHA and VA have not been high enough to qualify to buy the existing average-priced home. So anyway, what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about what we discussed the last time. Uh, again, I'll be back and forth between here and the document camera. Uh, what I'm going to be doing is talking, uh, just setting the baseline of talking what a conventional loan is, and then we're going to talk about variations of the conventional loan, uh, different ver- variations of it. In other words, where we can allow less and less of a down payment on the, on the part of the buyer, Then we're going to talk a little bit about private mortgage insurance and the importance of that and and the role it plays today. I will be discussing a little bit about how you can actually, if enough time has gone by and the price of your home has appreciated enough or you have paid it down, how you can actually have that private mortgage insurance removed. And... uh, I think the last thing we'll talk about in this particular chapter will be something called Loan Assumptions, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And if time permits, I will be going on the Internet and showing you a few things. Again, I've spent quite a bit of time putting these links up on your Blackboard website with places you can go to get additional information and perform additional research to help you in your career as a uh, real estate professional, uh, again, because this stuff is constantly changing. And that's one thing I want to mention to you all, too, is that any numbers that I'm throwing around today, percentages, limits, or whatever, those things are subject to change, you know, as I speak, because all the time what's ending up happening is as the market changes, the lenders are changing. They're either changing trying to get more people, more business, because the limits have changed or something's going on. So these programs are are, if you will, in many cases, in flux. They change all the time. So that's why you need to be have a really good mortgage person, broker, banker to work with that can keep you up to speed. Especially if your business is just buying and selling homes or other kinds of property. So anyway, I'm going to move up here here for a minute and talk a little bit about the uh, the uh, conventional loans. As we talked about the last time, traditionally, traditionally, when we talked about conventional loans, what we meant was is that Uh, And as it says here, that for many years now, the standard conventional loan-to-value ratio, meaning how much the buyer has to put down in relation to how much the seller is going to lend, has been about 80% uh, of the appraised value of the sales price, whichever is less. So again, what we're talking about here is the fact that if we had a piece of property just for the simplicity of me doing the math in my head, and it was for sale for $100,000, and we were talking about a standard conventional loan, and you were going to buy it for $100,000, what would happen is that you would be putting down $20,000, and the lender would be lending you the rest of the uh, money to purchase it as, uh, as a mortgage, or as we call in California, a note and a deed of trust. Uh keep in mind that uh so this has been standard for a long period of time and any time that you put 20, your client you or your client put 20% or more down of the purchase price there is no requirement at all for private mortgage insurance in other words the lender is not going to ask you to purchase any private mortgage insurance to protect their interest It's only when you go past that. So in other words, if I put anything down less than 20%, that means 19, 18, 17, all the way down to zero. If I put down 10%, I have to have private mortgage insurance. So that's why we want to distinguish why that's very, very important. And also, too, that's why clients will maybe work really hard to try to get the price down enough, put enough of a down payment down so they don't have to pay this additional insurance. So, anyway, what I'm going to do is talk. The next thing that we're going to be talking about is, and we discussed the last time, was secondary financing. Now, it stands to reason that if we are going to be utilizing conventional financing to buy a piece of property, and what ends up happening is, is that uh, people that are buying the homes, first time home buyers, second, third time home buyers, don't have enough money to put down as a down payment in other words, less than 20%, that they're going to have to have some way to get that additional money. So, for example, I may very well decide I'm getting ready to buy my first house, and what I do is, uh, let's say, again, it's $100,000 for math purposes, and maybe all I've been able to accumulate, my wife and myself and my family, has been maybe about 5% of the down payment, in other words, $5,000. That remains that that I would have to come up with some way or another the additional 15% to put as a down payment. Now, there's a lot of different ways that I can do this. One of the ways that I can do this is that I mentioned the last time was to actually have the owner of the property decide to carry back their equity in the form of a second loan. And so... When you do that, there are certain requirements that have to be met. And again, I want to caution you that when I say these requirements, these are just an example. Does not necessarily mean that this does not change in the future. And when I say change means that it could become much more restrictive or it could be much more liberal in how they interpret the, the requirements. So anyway. So down below here it says conventional lenders allow secondary financing provided the following requirements are met. So what they're going to do is they're going to have some kind of requirements that they're going to want the person that is buying the property to meet. And as the book says here, but as I mentioned, this can change. It says for the bar, the bar must make at least a 10% down payment. So what we're saying is, is that traditionally, if we're going to go in for where we're going to have the owner of the property carry back the financing, some portion of it, the lender, it's not uncommon for the lender to come back and say, okay, I'll allow that to happen, except the fact that I want to make sure that the buyer is going to come in with at least 10% down payment. And the reason why is they want to make sure that the, when the buyer puts more money down, there's less of a chance that the buyer is going to default because they have more at risk, okay? Okay. Uh, another thing that they would look at is, is that the term does not exceed 30 years or less than five years. So basically, they're talking uh, about that the loan would eventually be paid off, okay? And so they could say, okay, 30 years is what you have to make the payment. No, no more than 30 years. You can't have a loan for 40, 50, or 60 years, okay? Another thing that they would very well have is something called no prepayment penalty. And the reason why they would have that is because especially the person that's making that first loan, what they want to do is make sure that if for some reason the houses start to go up in value or that maybe this person that's buying their home, maybe this is their first home and now they've got a brand new job and or they got promoted and they're making a lot more money and they can qualify for it, we want to allow these people to be able to refinance the property if they can. So one of the ways we can do that is by not having a prepayment penalty on the loan. So that's another thing that's important. Uh, The payments that should be scheduled payments must be due on a regular basis. We talked about this the last time. So the secondary financing, you have to show where they're going to be happening regularly, every month, every quarter, semi-annually or something, not whenever the buyer or whenever the seller decides that he wants some money. In other words, it has to be a regular scheduled set of payments. The next thing is is that these second loans that would be made can't have anything called negative amortization. And what negative amateurization is is the fact that, you know, the concept of amateurization means that every time I make a payment, I'm making payments on interest and principal. And what's ending up happening is my loan every month that I make a payment starts to go down. And so hopefully if I've borrowed, say, for example, $80,000 and I make my first payment, what will end up happening after the first payment, maybe instead of owing 80000 I owe $79,900. So I owe something less. Negative amortization, on the other hand, is where I, as the borrower, do not make enough of a payment on a monthly basis in order to amortize the loan. So, for example, maybe I should be making payments at $1,000 a month, but I'm not. I'm making them at $900 a month. So what's ending up happening is that every month that goes by, what do I do with that difference? What I end up doing is I end up adding it on to the existing loan which means that the loan continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's called negative amortization, opposite of positive where you're paying it off. The next thing is, is that the buyer must be able uh, to afford the payments on both the first and the second mortgages. Okay, So we're talking about the buyer, the person that's going to live in the place has got to be able to make the payments, not that they can make the first and somebody else is going to make the second. So we need to make sure they're qualified. So anyway, all this is is just to say, when you have uh what these are requirements that a lender would have if they would allow the seller to carry back a portion of their equity in the form of a second note and deed of trust okay that would exceed that 20% or that 80% or 20 80% uh, or loan to value ratio okay just requirements Now, what I wanted to do now is I wanted to talk a little bit about the different types of ways that you can do this financing, this secondary financing. Uh, The first one that you can do is where you would actually, let me see if I can do this. Um, You can have something called a, uh, the first type, remember, when you have mortgages, we can start at one extreme where we say, okay, it's going to be 30 years or 15 years, the buyer is gonna make monthly payments at the end of the term, at the end of 15 to 30 years, the loan's completely paid off. That is probably the easiest one for everybody to understand. Uh, that's standard. Now, between that, there are variations. So the variations are gonna be anywhere from a fully amortized loan down to what we would call an interest-only loan, where we don't make any payments on the principal at all. So there's variations, different kinds of methods or programs in between. The first one that they have, that I'm going to show you, is where we would have something like a payment that we would make on a loan, and they give you an example here, where maybe the seller is carrying back the loan, and this amortization chart here, this graph by the way, is showing the pay down. So what's happening is, is that we have a loan, that we've borrowed some money, in fact it tells you up here what it is, I'll give you a little bit of a scenario. This is the following chart illustrates how the $9,000 second mortgage balance would be steadily decline over 30 years, steadily, if it is allowed to do so, meaning that it's allowed to run for 30 years. A 30-year $9,000 loan at 9.75% will have a $866 approximate balance at the end of five years. Okay, So what they're trying to show you here is you go, a seller sells the property, They turn around and they say to the buyer, this is what I promise that I'll do. I will go ahead and carry my equity back, my $9,000 in in equity. I'll carry that back as a second. Okay. What we're going to do is that the payments you're going to make to me are going to be based on the fact that as if you were paying them off over a 30-year period of time. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to let that loan run for five years, and at the end of five years, the loan comes fully due and payable. You have to pay me off. Now the concept behind that is that we are run, the reason why we run it for 30 years is because because the amortization is that long. Hopefully that's one one part of the lowest part possible payment or initial lowest partial uh, possible payment we could make. Okay, if we had made it for like 15 years or 10 years, the payment would be a lot higher. But by making it over uh, over 30, it's smaller. So this this way the buyer can hopefully better afford or be able to afford to move in and buy the house. That's the concept behind it. But the reason why we're going to make it amortized over 30 years but callable in five is because maybe the seller turns around and says, you know, I agree to do this for five years, and at the end of five years, I'm going to need that money for something else. Maybe it's going to be tuition for my children to go to college, maybe it's going to be uh, some way that I'm going to help pay off my final house payment, maybe I'm going to, I think I'm going to need to get a new car. For whatever reason, they've made a decision at the end of five years, they're going to need to have that loan paid off. So what this chart basically shows you here is you're going up this way, and this is dollar amounts, and when you go across right here, this is years, so what happens is this is this curve, this curve, by the way, is drawn, if you will, and don't get scared, of this is drawn mathematically, in other words, somebody's going in there and plotting this curve on some graph paper, and anywhere along the line, if I want to find out how much money I'm going to owe on this particular loan, all I have to do is find out how many years have gone by. So for example, if I wanted to know how much money I would still owe at 20 years, I find 20 years, I go up here to the curve, and then I go over here, and it shows that I'm probably going to owe somewhere around $7,000. If I want to go out here at 26 years, you'll notice I go from 26 up to the curve, and then I go over like this, and approximately about 5. What you're going to start to notice here is that I really make most of my payoff on the loan really about in the last... In this particular case, about halfway through is where I really start knocking down that loan to where it's almost near the end. It's almost I'm paying almost ex, almost exclusively principal. Okay, but what this is allowing me to do is to show this is the point right here after five years at which how much money I would still owe on the loan, and this is how much the buy the seller would expect to get a check from me. Okay, when I settle the loan. Okay, just so you understand how that chart works. So that's one way I can make my monthly payments. Another way is that I could make my payments at the other extreme as interest only. This is probably the, the, the least amount of money that the buyer has to come out of pocket with because what I'm doing is I'm not collecting any principal at all. I am only collecting interest. What this also means is that the buyer is going to be making these monthly payments and at the end of the term is still going to owe the original amount of money. Uh, Do we have these loans in existence today? Yes, we do. The whole concept behind them is the idea that that the buyer is having to pay the smallest amount. And where loans like this work for people, by the way, is for people that are buying a home know that they have got really good credit or they've got a good credit history. They've really solid, you know, job wise. But for whatever reason, they're not quite making enough money right now to be able to afford to, you know, or they don't have enough as a down payment right now in order to get a lower, a lower loan to value ratio. But you know, when you work with the clients, that they have maybe got really good careers. There's a really good uh, career progression for them. Maybe they've gotten hired, and it's very easily to tell that they, what level they're going to be out in, in the future. In other words, it's a promotion structure. So we know that when they get in here and they've lived in the house for about five years and they get ready to refinance, they're going to be earning enough money to be able to afford the new house payment okay, or to move on. So it's very, very important that we look at this. this is, these types of programs are, believe me, in my opinion, are not structured for somebody to barely get in who has no potential of possible career growth in the future, who maybe doesn't have quite good credit right now. This is not what these programs are for. And if somebody puts an individual in a program like this that's already struggling with making car payments and some other things, they're really doing an injustice to the clients. So that's why this is really important. You're looking at a good, solid person, good, solid client, pays their bills on time. That's what we're looking at here. But what we want to do is get their monthly payment down initially as small as we can. So anyway, interest only, what we're doing here is we're taking that $9,000 and we're using a really simple factor, just multiplying it times 0.975. We can do that in a calculator if we want to. And this is telling us right here what our yearly premium or our yearly uh, interest is going to be on that loan. So what that means is after the first year, They're going to have paid $877.50 for the whole year, and at the end of the year, they're still going to owe $9,000. Next year, they're going to pay $877.50, and they're still going to owe $9,000. Now, in order for us to figure out what their monthly payments are going to be, we just take this factor right here, and we divide it by 12, and this tells us that their payment is going to be $73.13 per month to, to amortize that, or not to amortize, but to just pay the interest on that loan, okay? Simple interest. Uh, now, so, so you get the idea that there's two extremes, fully amortized and interest only. Now, any time that you're going to go ahead and, and, and put less than 20% down, you are going to have to get something called private mortgage insurance if it's a conventional loan. If it's a VA loan, it's a VA guarantee, and if it's FHA, FHA has their own insurance, but this is private mortgage insurance for conventional loans only. So what this says is it says 80% 80% conventional loans have traditionally been considered safe by the mortgage industry because of substantial equity the borrower has in the property. 20% of the purchase price is a strong incentive to keep the mortgage payments current. So the concept is, is that they... You know, is there people that have put more money down as a down payment and gone into foreclosure? Yes. But statistically, this has been determined through historical data that this is a pretty safe territory for mortgage lenders. So in other words, if the mortgage lender has really gotten a good solid appraisal by a good appraiser and has really established the market value of that property and has really looked at the credit rating. And uh, the payment, you know, put looked at the client, made sure they had a really good job, and that they were solid, you know, in their employment. The chances of them going into default are very, very small. And one of the reasons, one of the major reasons, why is because the client or the buyer has a lot of equity in the property, and they're not ready, willing, and able to walk away from a lot of their money that they put on the table. So, in other words, because they have, they'll probably make decisions and say, you know what? Instead of going on that vacation to Hawaii, I'm going to make the house payment. Instead of buying the new car, I'm going to buy the house payment. Okay. Instead of maybe buying the new car, I'm going to ride the light rail until I can afford to buy the new car, but I'm still going to make the house payment. Why? Because you have a lot of money at stake. That's why these are a lower risk for the lenders. Now, the private mortgage insurance, uh, let me see if I can make sure I've got all this right here. It says, however, once borrowers begin making loan loan Low, I'm sorry, making down payments of less than 20% of the sales price, lenders regard the loan as more risky. Under these circumstances, the lender will require the borrower to pay for private mortgage insurance as a protection against loss, and that's a loss to the lender, to the lender. What the lender wants to do is make sure that they do not end up with the property, you know, as I've mentioned many times before, lenders are not in a situation where they can easily take property over. That's the last thing they want to do. Uh, what they really want to do is lend money to people that are just going to make the monthly payments and either pay it off or refinance it later on. They don't want to have, they don't want to have a uh, – anytime they have to take a house back and start going through the fact of a foreclosure process – and then hire people to go over and mow the lawns and keep the pools clean and do all that, they're losing a lot of money. So they don't want to do that, okay? So what they've done is they said, you know what? If I'm going to allow buyers to put less money down, what I'm going to do is I'm going to require some kind of insurance that's going to protect me, okay? And that's called private mortgage insurance. And let me see what I have here. Okay, it says both... Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac require third-party insurance on home loans with less than 20% down payments. That means if you want to sell them, you've got to have have that private mortgage insurance. Needless to say, the smaller down payment requirement of 90% loan made made it very popular with buyers and sellers and real estate agents. Loan mortgage insurance is sometimes available for loans up to 95% of loan-to-value ratio. Again, when I throw these figures out, remember, this stuff changes all the time. Okay, Fannie Mae can make a decision to change things tomorrow. Or, or, or we can have legislation passed that can change things. So we want to keep that in mind. This is how it works. Okay? When a loan, when insuring a loan, the mortgage insurance company shares the lender's risk. Okay? But actually assumes only a primary element of the risk. In other words, they don't insure the entire loan. This is to say that the insurer does not insure the entire loan amount, but rather the upper portion of the loan, the amount of the coverage can vary, but typically is 20% to 25% of the loan amount, typically. And they give you an example here. Here's an example of 20% coverage. The property sells for $200,000. That's the sales price. The loan-to-value ratio, what's happening is that the lender is going to go ahead and lend 90% on the loan. The buyer is coming in with a 10% down payment. What's happening is you're going to have an 80 dollars $180,000 loan on the property. What's going to end up happening is that the the lender is going to require 20% coverage, right? And the 20% coverage is 20% of the loan amount, okay? Which means that the amount of the policy, the insurance policy, they're going to ask the buyer to get is for $36,000. That's what they're asking for. They're asking for that insurance to insure them. So in the event of a default... That's what's insuring them. So down below here it says, in the event of a default and foreclosure, the lender at the insurer's option will either sell the property and make a claim for reimbursement of actual losses, if any, up to the face amount of the policy, or relinquish the property to the insurer and make claim for the loss for the policy amount. What this means is simply this, is that if the property goes into foreclosure at the day of the foreclosure sale, that the lender can do one or two things at the option of whoever has the insurance. Number one, the lender can go ahead and take the property back. In other words, go ahead and go to foreclosure, which is going to involve a lot of costs of the foreclosure sale. What they can do is they can take all of those costs that are associated with it, and they can turn around and they can say, okay, we'll handle, we the lender will handle that process, and then we're going to go ahead and put a claim in for it. We'll tell you how much money we're losing on this, and the insurance company, you pay us. The second way they can do it is is that they can just turn around and have the insurance company take the property. Then it's the insurance company's worries about it, and then they just remit the money back to the lender again. So those are just two different ways they can do it. Um, It says, losses incurred by the lender take the form of unpaid interest, property taxes, and hazard insurance attorney's fees and cost of preserving the property during the period of foreclosure and resale which, by the way, can take months, maybe years, before you actually sell it again, especially if the market is slow, as well as the expense of selling the property itself. The following example is an illustration of how the claim is working. Okay, so we're going to show you an example. Got to bear with this for a minute remember what the original property was. The original, so that you remember what this was, is that we originally had a property that the sales price was $200,000, there was a 90% loan, which meant that the the loan was for $180,000. You kind of have to keep these figures in mind as you work through this, okay? And that the amount of coverage that they're going to get is for $36,000. So what we do is we turn this over and we say, okay, now we're in foreclosure. What happens? Okay, so there's several things that have happened. Number one, there's been unpaid interest on the loan. So in other words, what's happened is, is because the owner of the property has not been making monthly payments, the bank has suffered the loss of income from that loan. they have not received the interest. So that's how much the borrower has an unpaid interest. There's also some unpaid taxes here, probably their property taxes. You have some attorney fees, you know, in here. Now the attorney fees that are thrown in here, if it's, if it's typically a mortgage, you may have that or has been a dispute, you may have attorney fees. If you're dealing with it, just a trustee foreclosure process, a statutory foreclosure process, chances are you probably don't have those fees, maybe. Yeah, you may have fees, though, that are taken by the title company or whoever's going to handle the foreclosure. They've, they're not going to do it for nothing. They're going to charge you some fees, okay? You have some cost of reselling the property again, okay, which can be uh, uh, real, estate license, uh, real estate commissions, uh, escrow fees, title fees, things like that. You have some miscellaneous expenses, so the total amount of the foreclosure sales you can see is $21,146. That's how much money is right now what it's costing to, 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 to take care of this property in a foreclosure process. Okay, And again, this can be a lot higher if the property has to sit on the market for a longer period of time because the longer it sits, you may very well find out that the lender is paying for uh, the lawns to be mowed every week, uh, you know, the pool to be cleaned. If the house is sitting vacant, there might actually end up being some vandalism or damage. It can go on and on. Now, what they're saying here is that, oh, by the way, when they sold the property, they were able to sell it for $195,000. Okay? Original, okay. They had a loan balance on the property of $187,000, so they had a potentially a gross profit, potentially a gross profit of $8,000, meaning that if they didn't have that other problem, they would just have to sell it, They'd have that loan amount, and that would be $8,000 profit. But what's happening is now they've got to factor in those losses. So here's what happens. We take the $8,000 gross profit that we made, and we take away from that the $21,146 that we had in foreclosure costs, this figure up here. okay? We have to take that away, which means that in reality, when we sell this property, we've actually lost $13,146. That is what we have as a lender. We've lost money. So now, now we go to the insurance company, you know, to the PMI, private mortgage insurance, and ask them to help us out here. So this is what happens. It says, uh, in return, in return for issuing the loan, insuring the loan, the mortgage insurance company charges. Okay, so anyway, that's what we go to the lender for and ask them, please give us some money. How they give it to us, whether they take the property or whether whether we're selling it or whatever, it's, it's up to them. In fact, if, in this case, if it was going to the insurance company and they were just going to take it over, then they would be the ones that would incur the loss, okay? So the idea that that's what they're insuring, and they're only insuring up to that $36,000, by the way. They're only insuring that potential loss that the lender can have because it's going over that 80% value. Now, after that, I uh, want to talk a little bit about how this insurance works says, in return for insuring a loan, a mortgage insurance company charges an initial premium at the time the loan is made and a reoccurring fee called the renewal premium. And you can have it done in one of two ways, and I'll talk about that in a minute. This is called the borrower's mortgage, uh, mortgage payment. Real estate agents and lenders refer to the charges as PMI, Private Mortgage Insurance, or MPI, Mortgage Insurance Premium. Okay, typically it's PMI. Uh, the initial premium... Okay, the initial premium, how much is charged initially, or the initial premium charged on a loan closing for a 90% fixed rate mortgage is generally less than 1%. So in other words, it's usually 1% less than 1% of the loan is what the premium is. Uh, depending upon the amount of coverage requested, typical coverage would call for initial premium of about 5% of the loan amount for a 20% coverage. And they give you an example here. They said if you have a sales price uh, of a home of $155,000, you have a loan amount of $139,500. That means that the loan amount right here is $139,500. You, if your premium was this rate, then, that, uh, which would be a half a percent, okay, that means that your PMI at closing would be $698. That's what you had to pay at closing. That's for your first year premium. It says the premium for standard fixed rate 90% average is about 0.34 of the loan amount annually. The annual fee is divided by 12 uh, and added into the buyer's monthly payment. Okay, so that's basically how that works. And they give you an example on the next page of how that particularly works. They say here, if you had a loan amount of $139,500 loan amount, This would be the percentage that you would be charging on an annual basis. It would be a reoccurring fee. So your monthly annual premium would be $474, and then you divide that by 12, and your monthly payment would be an additional $39.50 per month. Okay, so that's how that works. And if that's the way the loan is set up, you're going to continue to pay that and pay that and pay that every month, month after month after month. Now, a lot of times people will say... Does that mean I paid for the entire length of the loan and, and never, I always have that monthly payment? And the answer to that is no. Okay. The answer to that now uh, is that after the loan, and I'll show you in a minute, after it has existed for a certain period of time, there's a way that you can go in and have that removed. Okay. Now, the other thing that they want to stress in here is that you could also have what's considered to be, instead of you making a monthly payment on it, In other words, where you have your principal and interest, and then you have this insurance premium, that you could have also rolled, you could have said to the insurance company, excuse me, how much would you charge me to insure this risk over the life of this loan? They'll calculate it out. They have tables to do this. And then what they would do is they'd give you an amount. And what you can actually do is finance that amount. So essentially what ends up happening is that's built into your monthly mortgage payment is what happens. So that's what this part is about. It says, some private mortgage insurance companies offer one-time premium programs as an alternative to the traditional program of an initial premium plus renewal premiums. Under this alternative, the initial premium and renewal premiums are combined into a single one-time premium. The one-time premium is financed over the uh, term of the loan and then paid as a lump sum, okay, Uh, the premium amount is simply added to the mortgage amount before calculating the monthly payments. So in other words, what's happening is, is you may have a loan for $100,000. They decide that this this payment is going to be, say, I'm just making these numbers up, it's going to be $2,000. So the amount of your loan that you're actually borrowing is not 100, but it's 102. So your payments will be based on that. That's another way of handling it. And the reason why they do it that way is because the people, it's just to keep, you know, to spread that payment out over a longer period of time. Now, the next thing is is people will say, well, what happens? Do I have to pay this forever and ever? And the answer to that is no. You can have it canceled, but there are certain rules that you have to follow. Okay, so it says, lenders require mortgage insurance on high loan-to-value, low down payment loans as a protection against borrower default. Once the, the increased risk of the borrower default is eliminated, Usually, when the loan balance has been reduced to 80% or less of the, and I've got the next page here, of the home's present value, of the home's present value, the mortgage insurance has fulfilled its purpose. Only a lender, originally, a lender was not required to cancel the insurance policy. Even okay, so let me just tell you what happens. Um, you know, the concept is, is if you happen to have this kind of a mortgage, and this has to do with which you're reading your, all your mortgage statements, and a question you should be asking when you get the loan, is, okay, based on the kind of mortgage insurance I have, what is the process that I would have to go through in the future in order to get this canceled? So the concept is, is if, for example, if I had a, a property that I had paid $100,000 for, and maybe I was, had only put down like 10%, and let's say 5, 10, 15 years went by, and I, and all of a sudden now that property's not worth 100000 anymore, maybe it's worth one hundred and fifty or 200000 the lender's risk is gone. So what you need to do, what you would want to do is say, I want to have some way to not have to pay that premium anymore. So you have to ask about that up front. You have to find out what that process is. And so they go through here, and they just talk about how you do that, okay? Um, and... I'm going to give you an example here of uh, probably, um, uh, for the lack of anything else, just tell you that how uh, what the government requirements are that where it where you're allowed to cancel this insurance premium. Okay, it says FHLMC now requires lenders to drop coverage at the request of the borrowers under certain conditions. Now here's the conditions. Number one, and you have to listen to this very carefully for it to make sense. Number one, the insurance must must be canceled if the loan is at least seven years old and has been paid down to 80% of or less of the home's current value. So if that's the situation, if that happens to be the situation that you've owned at that period of time and you've got a good track record and now you've paid it down to less than 80%, what ends up happening is that now you can say to the lender, I want it canceled. Now the only question here is is how would you go ahead and get figure out what the value of that property is? You have to have some way to prove to the lender that the what the property is worth today. You know, uh, so you may very well have to go out and get an appraisal to prove what the value of the property is today, and then take a look at the whole th- you take a look at the whole thing and then put the request in to the lender and ask them if you meet those conditions, they have to take it away. Okay, stop making payments. Number two. If the mortgage is less than seven years old, lenders must cancel the policy only if the loan has been paid down to 80% of the home's value and the borrower meets established payment history criteria. So what they're doing is they're saying, let me read this again. It says, if a mortgage is less than seven years old, so in other words, one, two, three, four, five, six years old, Lenders must cancel the policy only if the loan has been paid down to 80%, which means that, now if we look at a normal amortization schedule, that means that the the borrower has probably had to make some extra payments to get that down below 80%, okay, of the home's value. But that's the home's value, which means that we're talking about an appraisal now, getting an appraisal. And the borrower meets established payment history criteria. So what they're doing is they're looking at the fact that two things. Number one, they want to have some kind of an appraisal, to show that the value of the home has been paid down and there's enough equity there. Number two, what they want to do is they want to make sure that the borrower has been making their payments on time. It hasn't been like, oh, I made my payments and then I skipped a month, and then I made two payments and I skipped a month. They want to make sure the payments have been paid consistently, if you will. Okay, so that's the second way. Third way, if the borrower has has a fixed payment mortgage payments must not have been more than 30 days pa- oh this just tells you uh, the other two conditions of this is that if the borrower has a fixed payment mortgage which means they this principal and interest are always the same okay the payments must not have been more than 30 days past due in the immediate preceding 12 months so in other words in order for you to qualify for this this is like the history thing you know you have you could not have been late in the last 12 months. Okay, last one. If the loan is an adjustable rate mortgage, there must have been no payment over 30 days past due for the preceding 24 months. So that's where you get the two factors of historical data. You know what's your payment track record been? Okay. So again, this becomes important for people uh, to understand when they get a loan. If you happen to be a lender, a loan officer. This is something that you should be able to explain to your clients because your clients are going to ask you should inform them. You should explain what this private mortgage insurance is, how it works, so that they can understand it, and then explain so they can clearly understand that how they can go about getting it canceled in the future, okay, how they can do that. You should let them know that, okay? Um, Okay, so I think that takes care of that, okay? Now, and then there's a lot more in the book about this mortgage insurance, just tons of stuff about the mortgage insurance. Uh, The couple other things that they do is they talk about that there's other kinds of loans that they have as time goes by. Again, a lot of this gets driven by, if you will, competition. If you think about it, and you, even if you stood on the street or went out and asked your friends, and you named something, you took the average home that was for sale in Sacramento, and you went out and you asked people. You said, "I'm going to anonymously ask you. You know, the average home for sale in Sacramento is three hundred thousand dollars, let's say." And you said to them, "Okay, in order for you to buy that home, you have to be able to put twenty percent down and not have to pay, you know, not to pay uh, private mortgage insurance or whatever." So, you figure twenty percent down that would be that would be something like sixty thousand dollars, so you say would you do you have sixty thousand dollars you can afford to put down on a house to buy and most of them would say no." most people would say no it 's only those of us that have owned houses for years and built up a lot of equity that have that so you 'd be missing the entire beginning market. all those people that are coming out of high school up until they 're probably somewhere in their fifties or something. And then, even then, they would never have been able to qualify or accumulate enough equity because they could have never gotten into the housing market. So what ends up happening is the lenders turn around and say, okay, are there other ways that we can help consumers buy property that don't have the down payment? Now, remember, traditionally, what we've always had to do is usually most of us have normally gone to the government for some kind of assistance in the beginning. As I've mentioned somewhere in this class that when I bought my first house, I used my VA entitlement. In fact, I used that one, two, I think it was three times, no, twice. Uh, Also, I used FHA because I didn't have enough money to put as a down payment, okay? So the conventional lenders will turn around and say, well, can we do some other kind of program like that where people are not going to VA and they're not going to FHA? How do we do that? So they've come up where you can put less money down. So they have a number of different programs one of them you'll see is a 90% conventional loan. Uh, notice that there's a couple things in here, and uh, some of these things I'm not so sure. You know, this is what the lenders are really going to be looking for. It says, the qualifying standards for such loans tend to be more stringent, and lenders adhere to those standards more strictly, even though the loan is insured. Now, what's happening is, is they know that it's a higher risk, so they're starting to look at the individual and say, you know, can this person really afford to pay these payments? Okay, that's what they should be looking at. In other words, this is not a not a like let somebody in there that can hardly afford to pay put food on the table type of a loan. This should be really stringent things. This is somebody that you know is solid and their income's going to improve in the future. Um, okay, um, marginal buyers and properties are more likely to be rejected if the loan amount requested exceeds eighty percent of the loan value of the purchase price, whichever is less. So what happens is, is that you're probably going to find that these loans are going to be for people that can, maybe they have a good job or, and, and they have a high potential to make income in the future. They, uh, they don't owe that many bills, if any at all, and their credit rating is stellar. Okay, But they don't have the down payment. That's the problem. They don't have enough money to put as a down payment. Okay, Do they have another program? Yes, they even go to 95% loans. Okay, so there's even 95% loans. Again, uh, the the idea here is that you're looking at the fact of people that are solid in the market. In other words, they can financially afford to make these payments. I mean, that's what I strongly feel. I think that anybody that puts somebody into a home that cannot financially qualify. And also another thing that we're seeing right now happening in the marketplace, and I think, I think part of the problem with this is this is because people that are making these decisions haven't lived through historically or haven't really taken an economics class and realized that real estate is a cyclical industry. But any time you get alone with the idea in mind that you feel that, the, that your, your escape route, if you can't make the payments, is to sell it, that's a mistake. And that's what people have been doing in the last couple of years, the last year and a half. And that's sad because we're starting to see right now that the journalists, it's kind of making me laugh, they're starting to discover we're seeing nothing recently except articles in the newspaper and on TV about people losing homes because they can't financially afford them. Uh, This week right now, uh, from a historical perspective, this happens to be uh, October of of 2006, Brian Williams... On the NBC Nightly News, is doing a series of shows about people that are losing their homes because of the fact that they have a loan on the, pro- uh, on the property, that now the interest rate's gone up, and they can't afford to make the monthly payments, and what's ending up happening is they're losing the house. And in my personal opinion, I think that is terrible, because what happens is is nobody wins. It's a zero-sum game. What ends up happening is the lender gets stuck with the property. They lose their interest income. The buyer's credit rating goes down the tubes. Nobody wins. And, and for somebody to have had a loan with the idea in mind that they're going to get this because they, if they can't afford it, they can, they can turn around and sell it, has just not been properly advised, in my personal opinion. I think it's terrible. Nobody's winning when we do those things. So I think as a real estate professional... What you basically have to do is to make sure that you make sure your clients are counseled properly and when they're getting these loans. Okay, um, a couple other loans that they talk about here is are there 100% conventional loans? Yes, there are. Uh, they even go as high as 125%. I'll just read real quickly what it says here. It says in the late 1980s, some lenders were advertising loans from 100 to 125%. These loans were made on two assumptions. The first was that borrowers had a good credit history. That's okay. You can make an assumption on that. And were uh, were unlikely to default. The second assumption was that the rapidly increasing property values would soon make up the gap between the property's actual value and the time of the loan and the overall loan amount. Okay, that is the mistake. That is a high risk on both parties' places. That is totally, you know, I mean... These things turn, this whole entire real estate industry turns so quickly. You know, to buy a home with the idea in mind that you can dump it because you can't afford the monthly payments is, is so counterintuitive. The reason why you can't make the monthly payments is because the interest rates have gone up, probably on an adjustable rate mortgage. Why have they gone up? Because the Fed has tightened the interest rates. When they've done that, we now have less people I can afford to buy homes. home. So where are the buyers going to come from? doesn't make any sense. It makes absolutely no logical sense at all. So I think it's really a bad mistake for lenders to make and for people to make, Uh, really stupid mistakes, and everybody's going to suffer from it. As we've seen in the past experience, these are very dangerous assumptions to make. Such a loan creates a situation in which a borrower is more likely to default in a severe economic downturn when the property values decrease. Indeed, it might be very advantageous for the borrower to default rather than remain buried under such a loan. So, in other words, what ends up happening and is happening now is that somebody bought a property for, say, $300,000, and they have an adjustable rate loan that they got in that the interest rates are going up. Because they can't sell it and there's a lack of demand, the the price of the property hasn't gone up. It's gone down. Now that $300,000 house is worth $250,000. They can't make the monthly payments, they have hardly any down payment. There's nothing that the bar the buyer has at risk, so they walk away. Okay? They file they walk away, maybe they file bankruptcy because they've done the same thing with other financial things, and now there's a big fiasco. It's not a smart decision. Anyway, enough said there. The other kind of loan you'll see in conventional loans is something called easy documented documentation loans. The concept behind these loans is the fact that typically when you get a conventional loan, like when I got a conventional loan on a house that I built, you know, a takeout loan, they wanted everything. They wanted my income tax statements for the last two years. They wanted pay stubs. They called my employer. They wanted my bank accounts. They wanted everything, fully documented loan. And... I had to provide all that, and on top of that, they double-checked all of that stuff before they closed the loan. They called my employer. They said, does Pat still work here? They wanted my latest two pay stubs, everything, okay? Now, that's one extreme. This is the other extreme, where you have don't have documentation, and the argument behind these kinds of loans is the fact that the people are in some kind of a business situation. If you will, there are a... they own their own business, or they have some way of producing income in which it's very difficult for them to document how much money they make, which is always interesting to me. I, I have never quite understood that because, uh, you know, from an accounting perspective, you have to report your income to people like the Internal Revenue Service and the State Franchise Tax Board, and if you're a public company or you have investors, you have to report it to them. So for you to make money and not being able to document it is kind of strange. But anyway. What these kinds of loans will do is that they may very well require, because you have less documentation that's required, you may very well have where the borrower has to have a much higher down payment or has to have a a stellar credit rating in order to get them. So the idea is is that they can't prove, they cannot prove or easily prove how much money they actually make, but they can get the loan because they have maybe more than 20% down and on top of that, they, uh, they have a great credit rating. Okay? Again, I think it's kind of strange that people that are in businesses can't prove how much money they make. Uh, I just think that's kind of interesting concept, but anyway. Now, the last thing is, is about assuming loans. Now, the reason why we put this in here is because of the fact that, remember, there are there are times, like we are experiencing right now, in which the interest rates have gone up. If you went back a couple years ago, it was not uncommon for you to possibly even have a fixed rate loan that would be somewhere in the 5% to 6% range. And so what ends up happening is that when the money tightens up like it is now, people t- it becomes more difficult to find buyers because they're having to pay a higher interest rate on new loans. So the concept that people in the past have done is said, you know what, I've got this loan on this property. It's a great loan. It's only been in existence for three, four, five years. The interest rate's only at five and a quarter. It's fixed for 30 years. Why don't I allow somebody to come in and assume the loan? Okay, This was something that was done, a lot of was done in the late 70s and early 80s. The Last time we had a situation where the interest rates, not the last time, but it was one of the times that I lived through where we had high interest rates, and people wanting to take loans over. Subsequent to that or after that, there's been a lot of legislation passed, a lot of laws passed that have really stopped this from being allowed to happen unless the permission has been gotten from the lender. So in other words, you just can't go and take an existing loan and say, oh, I'm just going to let the buyer take it over. You have to now go to the lender and ask the lender what the steps are that you need to go through. And, again, this is another thing when you get ready to borrow money, you should be asking that question and understanding it, is what are the steps that I need to go through if I want to allow somebody else to take this loan over? And so what they'll do is they'll go down through here and give you some general guidelines. It says, uh, agent, you know, first of all, caution. It says agents should not take chances when writing sales – that call for the assumption of existing conventional loans. Don't give buyers and sellers advice on whether a loan is assumable unless you're you're certain. The thing is, is that just don't take a look at it if you happen to be in this business and say, oh, you can, a seller, you can offer that as something, a a new buyer can take your loan offer. You have to dig out those documents and go over those documents. And what they do is, um, they go through here, they say, when there is some question about where, what will happen if an assumption is attempted, consult the lender or an attorney, another individual who is particularly qualified to advise you. When a buyer attempts to assume a loan, one of these things are going to happen. Number one, the lender will accept the assumption and the loan terms will be left intact. Okay, in other words, in other words, you're going to hope and pray that the lender is going to allow you to do that. In other words, take the loan over and we're not going to raise the interest rate and we're not going to charge you some enormous fees. Okay, that's a possibility it could happen, but you need to check. Probably the second thing that's going to happen is that you're probably going to have where the lender is going to say, okay, bring that person in, sit them down, have them fill out a loan application, let me run their credit, let me run, um, you know, you know, well, let me do all the things that I think are necessary to find out whether they can take over this loan or not. And oh, by the way, I'm going to charge a fee, and I'm going to raise the interest rates. And if that happens to be the case, if that's the other extreme, you're going to say, well, what's the benefit of having them take the loan over? Okay, what is there any benefit at all? And you may say, well, after I've done all that and found out that they're not going to give me any kind of a deal, maybe it's not worth it. Now, you may look at it. It's not uncommon, though, to maybe go to the lender and say to the lender, listen, I want to sell my house. You know, I'm current on the payments. What kind of a deal can you offer? Is there any kind of a deal you can offer before I go out and start shopping for a loan? So that's not a bad idea to ask the lender if if that's possible. But anyway, this is the second extreme that you can have. The third is where the lender can just turn around and say, you know what? I'm not going to allow you to do that. You know, the lender can come back and say the lender will refuse to allow the assumption and will call the note, which means demanding full payment of the loan at once. The right to do this must be spelled out in the promissory note or the mortgage or the deed of trust, okay? If the buyer is an investor, the lender will usually require that the loan be paid down to 75% of the loan value. Okay, so the fact is is that that the lender can at their option just say, you know what, here's the deal. I don't want, I'm not going to allow that to happen. And by the way, if I find out you did do that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call the loan all due and payable, okay, which essentially means it's not assumable, okay. But be very, very careful. There have been, been lots and lots of legislation that's been passed to stop this from happening. The reason why, and I think, um, I don't think it's in here, but anyway, um, yeah, the reason why is because, and I'll just talk about this, the reason why is because lenders, even so they're making you a loan for, for 30 years at a fixed rate, they have little people in the back of the room called statisticians that are statistically trying to figure out what is the average person, how, you know, does, how long does an average person that buys a home keep that loan for so if you go to the lender, you're probably going to find, and we hear these numbers thrown around all the time, that people usually either refinance or buy into the house in about every five to seven years. And the lender counts on that. They count on that. Because what happens is, is that they're looking for the fact that, hey, you know what? If the, if the payments are going up, I'm hoping, or the interest rates go up, I'm hoping that those people pay off those low interest rate loans, okay, or sell those houses, because then what I can do is I can turn around and I can relend that money out again. Okay, so again, they're, they're looking at all of this stuff statistically to try to figure out how to, make, how to do the best lending practices they can to make the most amount of money. So you, you kind of want to keep that in mind that, um, you know, on, when it comes to these assumptions, uh, that, that, that the lender is not going to probably allow somebody to take over a really low interest rate loan without some kind of fees or something involved. So with that, I think that that pretty much finishes up our discussion on conventional uh, lenders or conventional loans. Uh, The uh, next time that we meet, we're going to move on and talk about something called alternative financing. It's not creative financing. It's just alternatives, such as adjustable rate mortgages and graduated payment mortgages. With that, thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here the next time.